Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 113 of my section music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. First of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode 113 of my music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or in Stitcher or on iHeartRadio or on Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I was going to give you a prescription what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge sexy music fan slash expert slash nerd, and uh, each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s and with the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song, why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and into my own personnel, analysis on the arrangement of the song, will soon include the chords and million lyrics, and the second part is showing dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, um, who are the musicians on the track, whether it be the studio musicians or the band members themselves, and the history behind the artists that recorded the song and produced it, produced it, the writers that wrote the song, and the musicians that played on the song, whether it be the band members or the studio musicians themselves, and the, what studio the song was recorded at, where that studio is located at, and the label of songs released on where that label is located at, and the peak position the song made up originally on the Billboard Hot 100 charts when it first came out in the year when the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, actually, I, I forgot to mention this to you guys last week. It's actually kind of cool. It's kind of has kind of has to deal with me specifically. Um, it was something I, I was trying to figure out about my childhood, you know, because as you guys know by now, I grew up listening to oldies music from the 60s and early 70s. I grew up listening to Kirth 101. They played a lot of this music. But what I didn't realize, you know, when I was, I, I kind of knew this, but at the time, but now I have a better idea of it. Um, when I was growing up listening to this oldies radio station in LA, Kirth 101, by the time I started listening to it, they kind of shrunk their playlist to the point where they got rid of a lot of the early 60s songs from before the British invasion. And they were mainly playing songs from after the British invasion or during the British invasion and songs from late 60s and early 70s. So they got rid of a lot of the pre-1964 songs on their playlist. And also, you know, and that made me wonder, because when I was a kid, I actually remember hearing a lot of 50s and 60s songs, you know, and honestly, I was trying to figure out exactly where I could have heard these songs if it wasn't on Kareth 101. Because I remember hearing a lot of early rock and roll stuff from the early 50s and even mid to late 50s and also some stuff from the early 60s and some low charting, uh, you know, uh, 60s songs that I don't think Kareth 101 ever played. So I was thinking to myself, okay, so where do you, where could I have heard those songs if it wasn't on like CDs that I used to have a million years ago? Um, well, I found out about this other oldie station that was on at the same time as K-Earth, but they played more deeper tracks from the early 60s and a lot of 50s stuff too. And they were called KRLA. And they were actually an AM station on the dial AM 1110. That was their channel number. And I'm like, oh... 
So that's where I heard all those late 50s and early 60s tunes that Kareth One and One would never play. That's where I heard all those songs. It was on that station, and I went and I thought to myself, wow. So really, I was listening to two oldie stations when I was a kid. Kareth 101 and 101.1 FM, and then KRLA on 1110 AM. And I, you know, it's funny, it took me a while to connect the dots, and it's kind of a full circle moment for me because I do actually remember hearing some other oldie station when I was younger in LA, and it was an AM station, but for the life of me, I could not remember. Uh, the name of the station or anything about it, except all I remembered is that it was an AM station. It wasn't Kareth because Kareth was an FM station. So, I, and for life of me, I was trying to figure out exactly what that station was. And turns out it was probably KRLA 1110 AM. That's probably the station. I remember hearing a lot of those deeper early sixties tracks and some, some more obscure mid sixties stuff as well. I probably heard all that stuff on KRLA 1110. And uh, also, you know, I, I did vacation a lot when I was younger, so I went to Hawaii, I went to Ohio, and I remember hearing songs on oldie stations when I was in both of those uh, places, so I, I heard a lot of stuff on those stations too, so all those things combined with, you know, me listening to Kareth 101 is really where I heard a lot of the stuff that I talk about on my podcast today, but um, that's uh, that's just just a little, little interesting thing about me and my childhood I wanted to talk with you guys about because this is something I was just figuring out recently. You know, it's kind of like figuring something about something out about your family that you were always confused about. Well, that was something about my childhood I was I knew about, but I just you know I really need to figure that out and put those two put the puzzle pieces together for that one. I'm glad I did that. So moving on, let's get with uh, the history behind last week's artist and song. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song, which was The Circle and Red Rubber Ball. Okay, so I kind of hinted at this last week. And basically, what I was hinting at is that this band is very, very interesting. And look, if you're a millennial, you've probably never heard of this group before. And you're probably like, what is this band, The Circle? I don't know anything about them. What is it about them that's so interesting? Well, I'm just going to, before I even get into that, I'm just going to give you kind of a brief sort of uh, vague description about this band, and then I'll fill in the blanks with the details later on in this episode, this podcast. But first, let me just break things down for you. Imagine you're in, in it's in the mid-60s, and you're a bar band, and you're a bar band just starting playing covers, playing in bars, and... You know, you're having not really, not even really modest success for regional success. And you're just not, career is not really going so well for for your band. You're just like a modest, you're doing okay. I mean, you're just, you know, having regional success playing local shows, but you're not really getting the national, uh, you know, nationwide success or fame that you would need at this time. I mean, not that you would need it now, but let's just pretend like it's the sixties and you got to get those top 40 hits nationally. And you're just not getting that. And you go from being a bar band with regional success, not really doing so well to being picked up by the manager, the same exact manager, one of the biggest bands in in at that time, they were so huge that they literally changed the entire freaking world. They were so big, and they were still touring. They were huge. They were unbelievably big. I mean, they were just humongous. They were so huge 
that you know they were the best selling they became the best selling band of all time imagine you get picked up by the same manager of that band and you wind up getting signed to a big corporate record label and the guy that produces you is the same guy that would later go on to produce for two critically acclaimed and probably one of the most well-known most well-loved bands of classic rock history Imagine you have the same producer of those two bands and your manager is the same guy who manages the biggest freaking band of all time. Well, that's what happened with The Circle. And I know you're probably wondering, okay, so Sam, what do you mean like the biggest band of all time? And what do you mean like the the producer of the group was later on to go to produce two of the biggest, most critically acclaimed, most well-known classic rock bands? And also... Imagine your first hit single was a, was an unrecorded song by at the, at the time a then up and coming songwriter who's fresh off of his first number one record and his first top ten single. All that you you basically get all that combined you get you would get the story of the circle, and I'm in, right now I'm going to explain to you exactly what who who are these people I'm referring to. And what what is it about them that makes them so interesting? And like, what do I mean by all this information? I'm gonna get into that right now. Okay, so what I mean by that is that the the Circle were essentially a, a garage rock band, even though their genre was a garage rock, but they were a garage band from Easton, Pennsylvania, and they were managed by Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles. And their first hit record that they ever would wind up having as a band was an unrecorded song co-written by Paul Simon. And they were produced by John Simon, who was no relation to Paul, but he would later go on to produce for both Big Brother and The Holding Company and the band. And Big Brother and The Holding Company was Janis Joplin's group, and I'm sure you know about the band too, Bob Dylan's original backing band who had all those, all those iconic songs like Up on Cripple Creek and The Wait. So I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. That's pretty insane that this band, The Circle, that you probably never heard of before, was managed by the guy who managed The Beatles. And he, they their first hit song was an unrecorded Paul Simon song that he co-wrote. And Paul Simon and Garfunkel, when they recorded that song that they wound up having a huge hit with, they were fresh off of their second hit single, Simon and Garfunkel. They had just gotten back together. And it's just insane how, you know, they wound up with the unrecorded Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel song. Or actually, it was a Paul Simon song. Art didn't have anything to do with it. But man, I mean, you know, Art, Simon and Garfunkel were just just beginning to get their feet wet and just beginning to get back together as a duo and just really starting and just really have commercial success and get comfortable as a duo again after after having broken up for quite some time, like a couple years. So it's just amazing how, you know, Simon and Garfunkel were fresh off the Sound of Silence and Homeward Bound and the Beatles were just fresh off of releasing Rubber Soul and were getting ready to record Revolver when... The Circle were having the most commercial success as a band. It's on freaking believable how they were in the, the Circle were just in the middle of all that. So now that I've got your attention, let's talk about the history behind The Circle. 
Okay, so the Circle, if you don't know anything about them, like I said before, they're from Easton, Pennsylvania, and they met while they were all in students at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. And basically, the, the, the original lineup consisted of Tom Dawes and Don Derniman. And Don Derniman, uh, sorry, Don Derniman was the guitar player, and Tom Dawes played acoustic guitar, and he, and he also played bass. And Jim Maiella was the original drummer of the band. And basically, here's the thing about uh, The Circle. I kind of want you to remember about them. Uh, the Circle and Simon and Garfunkel had something in common. And the thing that they both had in common is that when their success, were just, when they weren't just getting off the ground and just starting to have commercial success, uh, they were, there, was, there was friction within the other members of the group and they broke up. That's what happened with Simon and Garfunkel too. It was a little bit different because Simon and Garfunkel broke up because the success, the failures they had, you know, with, with the album Wednesday morning 3 a.m. and the singles off the album, so they broke up for that reason. But the there was a lot of creative friction happening with the Circle when they were just really starting to have, you know, before they just had commercial success with them to break up. But this song ultimately brought them back together. Kind of like how the Simon, the sound of silence ultimately brought Simon and Garfunkel back together. Okay, so again, Tom Dawes and Don Danneman. Don Danneman was a guitar lead guitar player. Tom Dawes played acoustic guitar and played bass, and Jim Maiella was the original drummer. And basically, uh, when again they weren't really together at this point. Don Danneman was enlisted in the U.S. Coast Guard in 1966. And the other two guys in the band were Earl Pickens on keyboards and Marty Fried on drums. Uh, Earl Pickens went up playing keys on most of their hits. And here's the thing. So they were a frat rock band. They were basically a garage rock group. I mean, they were a really, really raw band. And their original name was called the Rondells. And they were basically, and how they wound up being discovered, you know, managed by Brian Epstein, that's kind of an interesting story. Okay, so um, Nathan Wise, who heard the, the Rondells at a, a show in a bar in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on Labor Day in 1965, and you know Nathan Wise heard this group and he thought, wow, they, they sound really good. So what he did is that Nathan Wise, you know, his business partner was Brian Epstein and Nathan wise informed Brian Epstein about this really cool band that he heard in a bar in Atlantic city, New Jersey on labor day. And at the time they were kind of just uh, doing, doing several different gigs in center square in Easton, Pennsylvania. So basically they were just a struggling garage rock band having local success, but not nationwide commercial success. So, Nathan Wise discovers the group and then passes them on to his business partner, Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein likes what he heard, hears from the group and signs them as one of his artists, one of their one of his bands that he manages. He's managing at this time, along with the Beatles. And if you're wondering, how did they how did they go from being the Rondells to the being called the Circle? And by the way. Their, their name is deliberately misspelled, and I think it's because of, you know, they wanted to have a misspelled name, kind of like the birds. I think they misspelled the circle deliberately because they wanted to be kind of like the birds because the birds didn't spell their name correctly. 
And they actually got their name <laughs> from John Lennon. I'm not even joking. Yes, this is true. So John Lennon, you know, they were acquainted to the Beatles and John Lennon basically gave him a new name and said, hey, guys, um, I think you should call yourself Sissoko. And, you know, I think uh, you should change the, you change the spelling of it and make it sound kind of different. <laughs> and this is so true because, you know, they basically uh, that's how they got their name, the circle, because John Lennon basically suggested them that new name. And that's how that happened. So, you know, and uh, through Brian, through Nathan Wise, they also wound up getting a deal with CBS Records and getting signed to that label. And this is also the same label that Simon and Garfunkel were on. So it's just crazy how that whole thing happened. But now that you kind of have an idea for how they got their name, The Circle, and how they got managed by Brian Epstein, let's talk about how they even got a hold of this really good Paul Simon song that wasn't even recorded yet at this time. Okay, so like I said before, um, you know, at the time, the circle was going through a lot of creative differences and not doing very well as a group at the time. So basically what happened was that they, they had already broken up and Tom Dawes, who was the group's bass player, uh, basically became a road musician backing up Simon and Garfunkel on, on, on tour. And through that tour, that's how Tom Dawes got the original uh, Red Rubber Ball from Paul Simon. So basically, um, that's how that's basically how they got the song was Tom Dawes was a musician playing in Simon and Garfunkel's road band. And he that's how he was able to hear that song, uh, you know, to, and basically that's how he wound up recording it was hearing it through. Uh, you know, being a musician playing with uh, Simon and Garfunkel before the circle got back together. So, you know, they, they got that song. And even though they're having creative differences, they decided to get back together to try to record the song. And there's a couple interesting things about how they recorded the song, too, because it was originally recorded in stereo. And it's in I think the original mix of the song was in stereo. And it's kind of interesting how they recorded it, too, because they multi-tracked the song. They didn't do it all live. Um, there's at least there's two or three members who played more than one instrument on the song. And I'll talk about that right now with you guys. And by the way, how uh, John Simon, who produces band, uh, how he wound up even producing the circle is that Nat Weiss, who was Brian Epstein's uh, business associate, actually uh, approached him and said, hey, man, all the other producers for CBS turned me down. You know, I would love it if you could produce this group. And he played him a demo of Red Rubber Ball. And he thought, uh, you know, it was okay. But he actually asked his boss, uh, Bill Gallagher, if he could have $5,000 to record it. And, you know, <laughs> he, he said, sure, as if it were pocket change. I mean, that's that's crazy that he asked that much money uh, for the song. And basically... Uh, you know, and how he won Tom Dawes wind up even playing for Simon and Garfunkel's band is that he was spotted playing bass in New York Club by Barry Kornfeld, and he was actually putting together a touring band to support Simon and Garfunkel, who had just scored number one record with the Sound of Silence. So basically, and the way they recorded the song, 
is that they recorded at CBS Studios in New York in Studio B, and Roy Haley was the group's engineer. And in basically, Roy Haley wound up being the group's main engineer. And, you know, he wound up recording basically most of their hits. And Roy Haley also engineered uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, their second album, which had their three biggest hits on it. Uh, and When I Die, Spinning Wheel, You Made Me So Very Happy. And Roy Guterro ed, uh, played on the. I mean, ed, uh, the Fred Guterro wound up engineering the album too, but Roy Haley was the main guy engineering the album. Okay. So as far as who's playing what on the song, uh, John Simon was the one who actually came up with that really cool Calliope, you know, style Hammond organ uh, melody that he wound up playing on the record. So John Simon is playing organ on the song. And basically, uh, Don Danman's playing electric guitar. And, uh, you know, Tom Dawes is playing an acoustic guitar. And Marty Fried is the drummer. And John Simon is playing uh, Hammond organ. And Tom Dawes overdubbed bass on the song. And John Simon and Tom Dawes overdubbed Tamjarines for, you know, the chorus part of the song. And this was all recorded on a four-track tape machine. Now, basically what I think they did is that I think they might have actually used another four-track tape machine uh, because there's only so much you can fit on four tracks. They probably bounced every, put it, recorded everything onto a four-track, bounced that, lost generation, and then used another four-track machine and basically bounced that and they lost another generation after that. So I think that's how they did it because I'm not really sure exactly how they fit all that on a four-track tape machine. But... You know, basically, uh, that's how they did it. And uh, and it's interesting because a lot of what, you know, the the studio, the studios at Columbia at the time, uh, you know, had a lot of really cool, interesting pieces of gear like Poltec EQs to 1176 compressors and EMT reverbs. And that was what was what they used on the specific record. Now. I apologize if I'm getting a little too specific on the gear right now, but this is for all you gearheads out there who just love hearing about this stuff if you're a musician. Uh, Don Derriman played a Fender Strat through a Fender Bandmaster amplifier, and basically that's what he used uh, to play the electric guitar on the song, which is pretty cool. Um, which doesn't, when that tells me that they didn't use a, a 12 string guitar on that track, all they pretty much used was a six string. But that's kind of interesting because, you know, it sounds like a 12 string electric guitar playing under that organ, but it's actually a six string, and that's actually pretty cool. So the song was released on April 4th, 1966, and by July, it actually peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And by July, it was actually behind number number one from a from Beatles song, Paperback Writer. Yeah. So Paperback Writer was number one, and the number two song was this song, Red Rubber Ball by The Circle. And that's pretty cool that Brian Epstein had two songs, number two and number one, on at the same time in July of 1966. And here's the other thing. So... One can imagine, since this band was managed by Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles, um, you can almost bet that this group actually did some shows with them. And that is 100% true. Because, you know, the Beatles knew that their touring days were almost over. They were getting sick of it. I mean, they, these guys are playing a huge 
screaming girls and they couldn't they could never hear themselves because they were just so the girls were so much louder than them and they were like oh man i'm done with touring man and basically you know when they real when they realized this they knew that they had to get at least one more american tour in and then just just dedicate all their time to studio recording and this was right before sergeant pepper when they were playing the songs off of revolver so basically what uh what happened was that since this band was managed by the Brian Brian Epstein to manage the Beatles uh the circle were booked as the opening act for the Beatles during their last ever uh US American tour in the summer of 1966 and you can imagine <laughs> man it must have been tough you know to be the opening band for the Beatles i mean it was unfreaking believable I mean, these guys basically had to deal with all the screaming girls saying, we want the Beatles. We want the Beatles. I mean, they weren't there to see them. They were there to see the Beatles. And man, that must have been hard. You know, then they, they, you know, the, you know, the Beatles were a tough act to open up for. I mean, oh my God. But it's so true because during the summer of 66, they, they did almost, I think at least a thousand shows with them, but they, they were the opening act for the Beatles along with Bobby Hebb. And I think the I think the Ronettes too. I I think I'm pretty sure. But yeah, I mean, wow, <laughs> they were the opening group for the Beatles in, during the summer of 1966, and you're like, wow, that's crazy. I mean, they played their the they actually were the opening group for the last ever show the Beatles ever did a last ever like lot public live performance they ever did before '69 that rooftop thing. Uh, they they opened up for the Beatles at Candle State Park, you know. I think uh, in you know basically, and that was our last ever tour. I mean, concert they ever did, you know, was at Candle State Park, you know, which is basically the last thing they ever. And I think I'm pretty sure that was in, uh, you know, Pennsylvania or somewhere on the East Coast. But I mean, wow, that's crazy <laughs> that, that that they actually were the opening band for the Beatles. And look, and you know, here's the thing. So some of you might wonder if they were one hit wonder. And actually, the circle actually are kind of disqualified from being a one hit wonder because uh, they actually had a second hit after, um, you know, Red Rubber Ball. And that song was Turned Down Day. And uh, Turned Down Day was written by David Bloom and Jared Keller. And one, here's the other thing that was kind of surprising to me about this group is that they actually didn't play on their own records. Uh, Tom Dawes was the guy who played the electric sitar on Turn Down Day. So they played on their own records. They weren't they weren't they didn't use studio musicians in place of them, which is kind of cool if you think about it, because, you know, Marty Fried, Earl Pickens, Dom Dawes and Don Derniman actually played on their own records. They didn't use session players in the place of them. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they were a real band, you know. So, yeah, they had one more hit after Red Rubber Ball. And that was Turn Down Day. And that actually charted like september october of 1966 it didn't chart as high as red rubber ball but it made the top 40 after that you know they 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 made some kind of not so great career choices that ultimately led to their downfall one of them was that paul simon actually offered them another song that they th he thought would have been a good fit for the group and they th and actually uh you know they they said no on it they didn't want to record it and it's interesting because speaking of that, uh, Paul Simon and Bruce Ridley co-wrote Red Rubber Ball. They wrote the song together. 
And Bruce Ridley was in a group called the Seekers. And he was still in the group when, when you know, he was writing with Paul Simon. And he actually offered uh, Red Rubber Ball the Seekers first, but they said no on it. They didn't want to record it. So they wound up giving it uh, to the to the circle. And basically, when that happened, uh, you know, the Seekers didn't, re- they wound up actually did wind up recording the song, you know, but not until a lot later. So basically, that's what happened. And then, uh, you know, that song I was referring to, the Circles Turned Down, that uh, that Paul Simon offered them was, in fact, uh, the 59th Street Bridge song, Feeling Groovy, which wound up becoming a huge hit for uh, Harper's Bazaar in early 19. 19- the springtime of 1967, which by that time, the circle, you know, weren't, weren't really having any national top 40 hits anymore. I mean, they were having some pretty decent sized regional hits, but they were done as a, you know, having national top 40 hits by the late 66, early 67. And, you know, it's just a lot of that combined with the fact that they were, there was already issues with the group even before, uh, you know, they recorded red rubber ball. Like I said before, uh, you know, they were just struggling as a band even when they before they even had their most commercial success. So you can think that any, anything continuing on after that, you know, would just be, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to last as a as a band. I mean, they're you know, they were they, even even after they had Red Revolve and Turn Down Day, you know, if before that, you know, the, if, if you would think that, you know, they just couldn't really. uh they couldn't really sit stand for quite a while, you know, because they were having even friction before they recorded Red Rubber Ball. They they would think that would probably continue after Red Rubber Ball and Turn Down Day. But anyways, um, so they they never had any national top forty hits after that. And also another thing that also led sealed the kiss of death for the circle is that yeah, they were managed by Brian Epstein, who died in August of nineteen sixty seven. And that also screwed up the band, too, because not only did the Beatles suffer from that, but so did the Circle. So, you know, because they were still managed by Brian Epstein, you know, at this time. So that also, unfortunately, put a damper on their success. And that kind of opens things up for you, because a lot of people might, a lot of people think Brian Epstein's only band he managed was the Beatles, but no. He also managed Jerry and the Pacemakers and Billy J. Crew and the Dakotas and this band, the Circle. So, yeah, so... Um, you know, they, they broke up by 1967, 68, and essentially, uh, Tom Dawes and Don Derniman, they've actually followed kind of a very interesting career path. They actually became jingle writers. They actually started writing, uh, commercial jingles for commercials, which is kind of an interesting path to go down after you kind of, you kind of broke up as a, a band, but yeah, they wrote some really famous jingles after uh, Red Rubber Ball and The Circle kind of disbanded. And John Simon, who produced The Circle, actually produced the band and Big Brother and The Holding Company after he stopped working with The Circle. And yeah, I mean, he went up from being a trainee at Columbia Records to actually being a staff producer. And he produced all of the Big Brother and Holding Company songs like Down On Me and Peace My Heart and... He also produced all those classic band songs like Up on Cripple Creek and The Wait and all those really iconic songs that they recorded. So he would he would he would go on and do that after the circle kind of disbanded. But, you know, if there's anything you take away from this podcast, you know, 
they're so they're, this group is so interesting because they were affiliated with the biggest band of all time, and they actually got a unrecorded Paul Simon song just as because here's the thing. So when when the when the Circle released Rubber Rubber Ball, Ball uh, Paul Simon had the Sign of Silence, which was number one record, and Homer Bound, which was top ten, and he was about to release I'm a Rock, which was his third hit single, which also made the top ten. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. So. You know they, you know they were coming off their their second top ten single, and about to release their third top ten single, and then, and then they record Rubber Ball. That's insane. I mean, wow, it's just crazy that you know that basically they had all that success when all that was going down at the same time. So, you know they were they they were affiliated with two really really commercially successful groups that people would know long long to listen to forever and ever. And the guy that produced them produced those two really big bands. So. They were just a cool group. I mean, they had they were very unique sounding. They didn't really sound like anybody else, really. They sounded very, very unique, and they kind of had a pop rock sound, so they weren't really necessarily garage rock. They weren't as raw or as heavy as a typical garage rock band, but they sounded really good, and they had some decent B-sides, too, but they had that, you know, sunshine pop kind of sound to it, even though they were in New York and not in California. But, man, they were just so good. And, yeah, so they were a very interesting group for sure. So I take that back. Actually, Candle State Park is actually in San Francisco. And one of the jingles that Tom Dawes and Don Danaman wrote was a plot, plot, fizz, fizz, fuzz, fuzz uh, jingle for Alka-Seltzer. They actually recorded a really cool jingle for them. And that was one of the famous jingles that they wrote. And as of today, um, you know, the Don Danaman and Michael Lewis camp and a couple of other, uh, you know, uh, musicians are, are now part of the touring version of the circle and as of uh they that they reunited in 2017 which was three years ago and now they still perform obviously not right now because of coronavirus but they're kind of back together as a band they actually reunited uh pretty recently for the first time in like 50 years which is insane um so yeah so that includes part two of episode number 113 of my sexy music podcast millennial throwback machine I'm Sam Williams, and if you found some really insane, crazy facts about this band, you never knew anything about them, but you love the song, and you know, don't know anything about this band, you learned so much about them, and you're like, whoa, these guys are managed by the same guy who managed the Beatles, and they record an unrecorded Paul Simon song? This is insane. This is crazy. Well, if you're one of those people, and you're a millennial, and you're around my age, and you and you learn all this stuff for the first time after listening to this episode of this podcast, please email me at samltwilliicloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Also, check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast, where you'll be able to find all the songs I talk about on my show so far, including some ones I've mentioned in interview episodes and a couple of other things as well. Uh, you know, if, if you listen to this playlist, it'll give you an idea for the kind of music I talk about on my show. And if this gives you any ideas for the kind of music I talk about next time, podcast that I haven't talked about yet, please email those ideas to me at samlcwilliacloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies, and you can check out the official uh, Redbubble merch store for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all this really cool merchandise that I personally came up with the idea for the design for. I had someone else design it. It's a really cool logo that is attached to all these really cool merch items. Uh, it's the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking time I find my podcast on the bottom. Love that you guys can check that out. Um, definitely email me when you do check it out at samltblakeicloud.com 
or reach out to me on Instagram. I always love to hear you guys' thoughts on the logo plus the price of each item in the store. And um, that also the special guest I'm going to have my podcast soon. Uh, she'll probably be coming on later on this month in October, like the last, probably the second to last week of October is when she'll come on. So it'll be very exciting to have her on because it'll be nice because, you know, <gasps> she'll learn a lot, you know, from me specifically. And it'll be cool because I'll be educating someone, you know, live with, you know, this, uh, this, uh, the next person I'll have on my podcast. So it'll be a little different because, you know, instead of, you know, me learning something, you know, I'll, you know, she'll be learning something from me. So that's going to be really cool. And yeah, so she's someone around my age too, who isn't really too familiar with a lot of that sexy stuff, you know, so this is going to, it's going to be really, really cool. Oh yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, my birthday's coming up. It's on November 2nd. I love you guys can wish me happy birthday or, you know, really appreciate that. Um, so, you know, since I'm not really sure, I'm probably not going to have a huge party or anything like that because of COVID, but I would love if you guys can do that. Um, but yeah, so. Um, I'm, I really appreciate that. So I'm Sam Williams and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. And until next week, please keep things groovy.